This is episode 39 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Taylor Evans. Uh, Taylor is a speech-language pathologist in Georgia with a master's degree from the University of Georgia. He's been practicing for three years in medically-based settings, including skilled nursing, geriatric acute care, ICU, inpatient psych ward, outpatient, and currently works in inpatient rehab. His special interests include dysphagia, tracheostomized patients, head and neck cancer, esophageal dysphagia, instrumental assessments, and multilingual patient populations. Taylor is currently pursuing his board certification in swallowing, and he is a classically trained linguist from the University of Georgia with previous work experience as a foreign language interpreter for third-party contract companies for the military. Yeah, Taylor's a pretty cool kid, but (laughs) I think you guys are probably going to like this episode. I hope that it's taken with the intention that it was intended to. Did that sound right? Anyways, um, (laughs) basically, uh, today we're going to talk about how to kind of bridge the gap between these intergenerational kind of discrepancies. You know, we've got the clinicians that very rarely, barely had, I'm like having some total (laughs) word finding issues tonight, but, um, you know, we have these clinicians that had minimal to no dysphagia education that are just solely relying on their years of experience. And yet we do have these new clinicians that are coming out of these excellent medical-based, you know, medical speech pathology master's degree programs. And, you know, how can we learn from each other? How can we help to bridge this gap? And you've got experience. I've got a little more textbook knowledge. You know, let's get together and talk about this. So so that's what today's episode is with Taylor. We kind of talk about some, some topics that are newer in dysphagia that some people, some older, you know, more experienced clinicians never really thought of before. So we're going to talk about those topics and also, yes, some, some cheese to go with your wine. So we won't just vent the whole, <laughs> the whole episode. We talk about what we can do to actually, you know, facilitate some more kind of professional conversations between both parties. So hopefully you guys enjoy this episode. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. This week's episode is brought to you by the Medical SLP Solution Monthly Membership. What would it feel like if every week delivered right to you were resources that included videos and handouts about topics that affect the way we treat our patients every day? Well, that is exactly what the Medical SLP Solution membership is. Every week, we send you a two- to three-page handout, including an intro, why, how, and instructions about topics chosen by the members, including dysphagia, aphasia, dysarthria, pediatric swallowing, voice, just to name a few. They are all blind peer-reviewed by university professors because, well... We don't know the research as well as they do. And the professors also usually add in some recommended readings if you want to dive further into that topic. I also record about a 10-minute video of that topic, so you do, if you don't want to waste trees or if you don't have time to read, just get your weekly 10-minute topic in on the way to work. Some of the topics that we've covered include 
how to do a cranial nerve assessment, lab values that the medical SLP should be aware of, how drugs can affect dysphagia, how to complete oral care, the neural control of swallowing, infant-driven feeding. So lots of great topics that we've already covered. And our members also have access to an exclusive private Facebook group or private forum where you can post anonymously if you would like, which is run by experts in various areas of the field ready to answer your difficult patient questions. And if you don't have time to check social media or check the forum, no sweat. Every Friday, I email a weekly roundup of the resources for the week, as well as links to all of the excellent questions and incredible responses by our moderators. So if you missed a really great discussion, you can click right to it. No more FOMO. That's fear of missing out. So I provide all that to you every Friday. And this is all topped off with an exclusive monthly webinar for our community members. It also includes a Q&A session, and that will be accredited for ASHA CEU starting in May. So if this sounds like something you're absolutely interested in, whether you're a complete newbie to the field, you're a CF on Dysphagia Island desperate for support, you're a mom of five kids with 20 years experience and no clue if you've kept up with the latest research, then head over to medslpsolution.com to join anytime. Good access to all of this for just $25 a month, but you may want to jump in soon because we are going to close down registration sometime in May to get ready for those upcoming CEU webinars. So don't delay, join the community now and feel free to ask away. And I just wanted to let you know that during the month of May, we are covering the topic of esophageal disorders in the MedSLP Solution membership. So we've had a few different resources created by the wonderful Julie Huffman, um, I know we all heard her a few previous episodes ago. She's so, so wonderful, but she's created some resources about, you know, what are some common signs and symptoms of esophageal disorders, uh, giving us definitions of esophageal disorders. I know we've all kind of seen the terms stricture, diverticulum, you know, what, what exactly do they mean? Some of us really don't know. Um, so she gives us all those definitions, and then she also gives us a list of resources of what tests we, we should be referring to. So instead of just saying, GI consult, you know, we really can help to steer our patients in a better direction, provide the GI doctors with a little more direction and really help to get them the most specific tests to help them narrow down the diagnosis. So Julie's created all those resources for us and to cap it all off, she is doing a one hour webinar for ASHA CEUs on Tuesday, May 15th at 9 p.m. Uh, so this is free to all MedSLP Solution members. So if you're interested in joining the membership and hearing this uh, one-hour webinar for ASH CEUs, you can sign up at medslpsolution.com. Oh yes, I forgot to say it is recorded. So if you missed that live one-hour webinar on May 15th and you're a member of the membership, you can still play it back and get the ASH CEUs whenever a time is most convenient for you. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Teresa. How are you? Fantastic. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking after my little internet glitch, but it's 2018, so here we are. No worries. Happens all the time. <laughs> all right. So I gave everyone a little blurb about you in the beginning, but why don't you tell us who you are? Um, my name is Taylor Evans. I'm a speech-language pathologist uh, based in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I started out as a linguist. Um, I was really interested in languages and how they worked and then kind of fell upon how they work systemically in linguistics. Started out pre-med, like pretty much everyone else in undergrad, and took all my sciences and 
thought I knew what I wanted to do and went out and did some like shadowing for about six weeks, following different positions and realized they didn't really spend enough time with the patient for me to uh, enjoy it. I didn't want to be in front of a computer looking at lab values, not to say that, you know, that's what they do right. uh, for most of the day, but I just wanted a little bit more face-to-face patient contact time. So were you a linguist before you went back and did pre-med or you were? I did pre-med and then uh, I was like minoring in Spanish and just had this like, oh my God, I absolutely hate organic chemistry. Yeah. Um, I, this is not fun. Like some of the, the physical sciences, I'm not a physics person by any means. So, um, it kind of moved me towards what I really like doing. And I stumbled across linguistics and it was in uh, a linguistics course that uh, I was like partnered with a, a girl who was applying to school for speech pathology. And I kind of stole her life and <laughs> like, did yes. all the research. And um, I don't, I don't know if she ever like ended up becoming a speech pathologist actually. So um, crazy. Probably find that yeah. out. Yeah. Um, but I went to the department and I met some of the professors. And at that time I was really into like bilingual aphasia and bilingualism and how that works in the brain. And everyone was looking at me really funny and smiling. And basically I found out it was because I was a guy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think we've had like every male in the field on the podcast so far. Fair. At least half. Yeah. Um, yeah, they pretty much, they're like, you're a unicorn. <laughs> you know, we know that you're going to be special. You're going to fit right in. You're going to have a great time. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I, I came across the field. Never thought that I would have more of an interest in swallowing um, until my professor that I had, Dr. Lori Morgan Burkhead. Um, and she just completely changed my ideal about the field and about how we really are medical practitioners and clinicians in our own right. And I don't have to be called a speech teacher if I don't want to be. Yeah. Yeah. So let me, let me back you up a second because that's kind of the whole premise of this episode and we'll get into that. But do you think that having all that background in organic chem and all that stuff that you said you hated, do you think that helped you out so much? Um, looking back, yes. And even I would say more so in linguistics, um, people don't think of linguistics as a hard science, but it, it is a science of something incredibly complex that we all know is language. And the thing that I love about it versus more some of like the biological and physical sciences is you have to form a system that allows for normal variation and for error and for reasons of that error And I see a lot of that commonality in swallowing. And I think that that's something that maybe some people in our field don't have the same appreciation for of what normal can look like and all of the variations and how sometimes we take that for granted and want to be as safe as possible. And we don't really end up taking in the full picture of our patients. Totally. The hard sciences though, certainly as in terms of, if something is real, it's, you know, repeatable and um, has a theoretical basis, but also has some practical objective data to support it. And that really the, the greatest area is our interpretation and use of that science. 
Um, and at the core of it, we do, we are scientists and we have to look at every patient that we have as a subject, uh, an N of one, yeah. um, as it's been said before and, you know, measuring what we're doing against how they're changing. Yeah. I love that so much, Taylor. I think, you know, I mean, a lot of people say that they, you know, never even had a dysphagia course or like me, I went to a school that was pretty heavily based on, you know, school-based speech pathologists. So I have tons of background in childhood education, which I could give two craps about today, but you know, that's where all my education stemmed from. So it's so cool to hear that you actually did have a lot of pre-med, you know, medical-based background. For sure. Uh, I would definitely say some of the same things about my program. It's kind of known as a, a stuttering and fluency hub. We have a lot of amazing professors that focus on that. And um, I think I probably got the best education in that area, even though I don't really use it very often. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had some of that and it was difficult at times um, where I felt like a lot of the language and speech classes overlapped with what I already knew about linguistics and well, everybody was learning, you know, what syntax was in a morpheme. I was trying to stay awake. Um, yeah, yeah. But, and I think maybe that's why I found the medical stuff so much more fascinating. Yeah. But we, we had an opportunity and uh, I went to the University of Georgia and they gave us a, a million opportunities to learn from medical professionals. And um, our dysphagia professor was someone that works hard in swallowing research and has a clinical background and is currently in clinical education for physicians at Georgia Regents University, which is a medical college. She teaches med students about dysphagia and about fee. Oh, cool. Is very much on the forefront of trying to get them on board with what we do. Cool. All right. So that's kind of a long background about each other. That was great, but no, totally fine. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? This is kind of a kind of controversial, but kind of not really, but a topic that we have to talk about because it is real. It, it is. Um, I'm, I've been really nervous to even kind of bring this up just because I know that it, it's not, it may not be received how it's intended. And I'm trying to be like sensitive in maybe some of the terminology or how I pose my questions or my concerns. Um, but the thing I want to talk about is some of the intergenerational differences in how clinicians are practicing, uh, how we've been educated, what our attitudes are towards clinical practice, remaining evidence-based and staying up-to-date, and some of the differences that I see in how I think the theme of your podcast fits perfectly where we kind of have to take what we know that we know and admit what we don't know um, across the spectrum of experience and learn from each other, hopefully. Um, but that's really kind of getting in the door with some of those differences. I feel like as a younger clinician, it's difficult to really be part of the conversation from the, I have something that I would like to share yes. with you end of it instead of you have so much left to learn. Yes. Well, so, yeah. So let me rephrase this. So I'm Teresa Richard and I've been practicing for over 10 years and I know everything and you're Taylor and you've only been practicing a few years, but you had this fabulous medical background. You had this great dysphagia course. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say because I have way more experience. Right. So 
that's, that's where we're going here, and that's what we kind of want to figure out. Kind of why right does there. it have to be like this? Like, Taylor, tell me everything you know. Like, right. I, I missed out on a lot. It, so, it, it yeah. It kind of ends there a lot of the time, which is the sad thing. Um, but I think that throughout the, the history of our profession, there have been a, a, an, a constant influx of changes and updates and relearning things that we know are no longer correct and letting them go and questioning the things that we think do what they say they do. And then being open-minded to new things that are coming in, because I think a lot of the um, like device-based therapies and some of the more commercially targeted therapies with, you know, so, so research foundations and some of the, the practices that we, that people use for years, um, that they thought were effective aren't anymore. There's just kind of this skepticism towards new research. And I think that that's extremely healthy uh, and that we have to be good consumers of the research and use critical thinking and have the ability to discern what is good and what is not good quality research to determine how we implement what it's trying to say. But at the same time, with the, the, the three branches of evidence-based practice, I understand that the clinical experience is a major part of that, um, but it can't be all of it. And Absolutely. I, I, would, I would stand to say that it can't, it has to fall in line with the research. Yes. That when it's opposing or when it's lacking, and my concern is more on the lacking end, when there is new research, when we have new options for treatment, for diagnostics, for even things that are included in our scope of practice, um, that has grown and changed, even just within the field of swallowing, that instead of taking a, um, you know, this is what I know how to do, and it has been working stance, trying to figure out what do my patients need and where does my education lack and where do I need to fill in? And I think that the younger clinicians, sometimes, I can't speak for everyone because every graduate program is different, but sometimes we have a lot of that newer knowledge base, things that we thought were completely normal and that would be going on everywhere and people still don't know about. And that when we present that information, sometimes it's not listened to or taken as seriously or... um, implemented or adopted anyway, and sometimes even blocked. Yeah. Saying, you know, well, if I can't do that, I've been practicing for 20 something years. And if I don't feel that that is in our scope, or I don't feel that that's something I'm comfortable doing, how can you be comfortable or feel confident doing that? Sorry, can I went on a long one? No, no, I, that's, yeah. I mean, I'm really never speechless, but that, that's exactly where we're going with this. I mean, I love everything that you're saying, especially the the evidence-based triad. I mean, I, I, I honestly feel like there's so many people that they're just on this like one-way fast track with clinical and they've just kicked the, you know, part of the stool to the curb. That's the evidence-based research. Right. And, you know, if... And I, I know I even work with a girl that she's, I think, like a year or two out of her CF 
and she's brilliant. I mean, so I love having these conversations with her. Like, I mean, I like to think that I keep up on everything. I try to, but she's like, Hey, did you, have you heard of this paper? Have you read that paper? I'm like, no, like, (laughs) but I'm so glad you told me, you know, and I, and that's, I think where we're going with this. And that's what we have to do is just to be open. You may not agree with that research paper. You may not agree with it, but at least just entertaining the idea that maybe our peers, whether they are older, whether they are younger, actually might know a little something. Right. <laughs> Giving some sort of, because I mean, really that's, isn't that the goal and the, and the dream of the field that we would not repeat the same cycles and that we yes. can, you know, teach the younger generation as they come in to be competent and to be at least well enough prepared to begin and to assess what is, what works and what, is, what does not work. And if we kind of give this attitude of you won't have it figured out until year number X of of experience that it took me this long to be, to feel competent. So it must take you that amount of time. I mean, yes, it's a, it's like to compare it to a family thing. You want the best for your children or you want the best for what's going to, what you're passing down, what knowledge you're passing down in the same way. Why would you not want them to not have to struggle? Why would you not want people that you're supervising or that are your interns to pick up things faster than you? Um, Right. So that we can continue to move forward and not have to repeat the same mistakes, fumbling through things that, you know, may or may not work. Um, right. And then when something else comes along, being open to, to trying it. Right. I think the difficult part is like, I, there's, you know, still some people that I do fees with that are pretty apprehensive about it. Um, and I can't, I can't even think what the specific topic was last week, but this woman was telling her patient, you know, I, I can't remember what it was something like a chin tuck, like do the chin tuck it every time. And that, you know, makes you not aspirate. And it was mm-hmm. like, we just finished the fees. I had enough, like chin tuck had nothing to do with what's going on with this woman. Correct. Um, and it was just so obscure. And I just, I was like, you know, the chin tuck's really not effective in this situation. And she was like, would chin tuck, we do that every time. Like that just eliminates aspiration. I was like, well, no, but really not quite. And like, she looked at me like I had 27 heads. I believe it. Exactly what you're saying. I mean, she just kind of like shut down and wouldn't talk to me. And so I think the hardest part is how do we, like you said, it's hard to approach these situations Mm -hmm. because I so badly didn't want to discredit her 30 years of experience. But at the same time, like she could be putting this patient in at, at risk, right. you know, I, and I wish I could remember exactly what it was that she was doing, but I just remember that it, it had nothing to do with what we found on the fees. That's right. So I'm just like, we just did the fees and we just found everything that's going on. We came up with a great plan for this woman. She's totally on board. And you just came out of left field with this other idea that, you know, I, I completely understand what you're <laughs> saying. Um, I'm a big instrumentalist. I, uh, do pretty much 99% of the modified barium swallow studies in my hospital. Um, and even in my CF, um, I'm uh, Vince Clark's uh, protege, I guess. He was my CF yes. supervisor. Uh, yes. He, I'm sure you guys got a lot of work done. You have no idea. So <laughs> I think when I started, uh, I was like at a, a, a very strange multi-campus and I will never get another experience like that again. It had 
an acute care wing with an ICU and an ER and an inpatient psych ward and an outpatient clinic and a skilled nursing facility attached with a long-term care unit. And so I like got to see the whole, the whole gamut, the yeah. whole thing. And I ended up doing all of the modified barium swallow studies for all of those facilities. And just like when I started there, the SNF, I think they had like 13, 39 people on thickened liquids that hadn't been seen in years. Yes. And within like nine, 10 months of my CF, I think we got it down to eight. Yeah. And just, yes, he was all yeah. for a go find them, scope all the noses, use all the radiation you need. Yes. Find the problem, fix the problem. Don't be afraid to ask for things that you need. Um, yes. So he was fantastic. Yes, he is fantastic. But in my, in the same vein of like when I do my modified, sometimes I find that I have to hand them off. They're not always my patients. Um, Not currently necessarily, but like just in my experience that I have to change some of the recommendation. And I know that you probably have to do this as well. Yes, totally. And like knowing who you're handing off to, like I have to change some of the recommendations that I might make if I were treating that patient. Or if I were certain that the clinician knew what I was, you know, aiming at based on, you know, uncertainty that it will be handled in that way. And it's kind of, it's a difficult place to be in. Um, but it, it, it's hard for me to, you know, then claim something on that patient and try to follow up with them and kind of be hovering over somebody's shoulder, you know, to see if they're treating them you know, as recommended or following, you know, kind of the recommendations. Why, why do you feel like you have to change your recommendations, Taylor? Because you know that that specific experienced SLP will not do those therapies or what do you... Um, it, like sometimes just interpreting the pathophysiological impairments and how, the, how they would address those, um, I get, I don't want to say complaints, but I've had comments made about I never see you write delayed initiation and, or they penetrated and you know, like, you know, how, how is that? So their swallow is delayed and, you know, well, they're 82 and right. <laughs> right. thin liquids and that's it's penetrate all you want. It's fine. Right. Um, it's right. totally normal. And then just some of the exercises and I've gotten in the pattern of, you know, SLP to target blank pathophysiology, consider these exercises or these therapeutic interventions. Um, or like if I would want to do trials, if I think somebody, you know, may be able to tolerate some penetration with the use of a strategy, um, but I'm not quite sure of their cognitive status. So kind of saying, you know, we'll try these things if they can follow a left head turn and a double swallow. Right. But just things like that and just how aggressive I would be. Um, I feel like I specifically and a lot of my um, classmates were just taught not to be afraid of aspiration. Right. That if we are afraid of aspiration, we have no business doing what we're doing. Um, Just like a PT cannot be so afraid of falls that they hold a patient back. And, right. and really that, that's what it is, is that I think that it is equally as harmful to treat someone inappropriately and incorrectly 
as it is to treat them inefficiently. Well, that, and I think that's what I wanted to say before is, you know, sometimes like I was talking to a friend the other day and she's like, why do you just not say anything? And it's like, because I know that something that I could recommend could really help this person. And I know that something that this SLP may be doing could really harm this person. Right. So I feel like I have an ethical responsibility to say something right. like, Hey, you know, there is some research that shows that that might not be the best approach. Why don't you try this? And then of course we open up this whole can of worms, but I, I don't, I've never been one to sit down and shut up in the first place, but I really just, I, I just feel this. I feel like, I don't know that I could sleep at night if I just let somebody do something that I know would be harmful. Right. And, and that's the hard part, I think. I definitely agree. And that there always is that fear um, that someone's going to do something harmful. I haven't really had that many experiences with that where I feel like, you know, somebody was going to do something that was actively going to harm the patient because of misunderstanding. But more of um, <laughs> this tendency or a, a tendency that I see sometimes of treating the bolus and not treating the person and... Uh, being so heavily reliant, even right after I just did an MBS. Right. Well, their throat clearing. Okay. Um, so they also have, they have LPR and GERD. Right. And maybe they have... CO- but that's not in our scope of practice, Taylor. Oh my God. I almost split my table. Um, <laughs> so that's one of my like trigger points is yes. the esophagus. Um and that a cot like I think one of your other guests that I can't remember the exact title, but basically a cough is just a cough is just a cough. Yeah. And um, a million stories with that with, with you know other patients that when I got them like oh they have trachomalacia or um, they have a stenosis or they have like a thymoma that is impinging on their trachea and they're coughing all the time. And if we're not looking for things like that, other than just like dysphagia, 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 and we're just looking at how is the food making this person cough, we're always going to find a, a way to rationalize that the food is making them cough. Yeah, GERD and LPR, that's definitely, or just like esophageal dysphagia in general is, I know it's newer. To me, it's not though. To me, it's kind of right. like a, this is, was every bit, you know, a part of our course. I remember my midterm, that was the hardest part. I mean, we had to know like esophageal, uh, manometric, manometric, manometry norms. Yeah. Manometric. I think that's the word. I know words words in so many languages. Um, (laughs) um, but like we had to know all the norms for that and like when to refer for, you know, an endoscopy and what a Barrett's esophagus was and achalasia and uh, a hiatal hernia and how to track these progressions and like what that looked like on a modified and what that might look like during feeds. And, you know, had looking at a regular, a normal barium swallow and looking at the GI endoscopy, we should be able to glean some information from that, or at least be able to understand when the GI hands them back to us, how that might have an effect. I loved uh, the episode on esophageal dysphagia. And I was just like, yes, finally has someone has been, you know, shedding the light on this is a thing and it completely affects oropharyngeal dysphagia. 
I literally just had a patient the other day. I mean, this guy is super duper Italian. It's tomato sauce and and red wine. wine It's my jam. Red wine and martinis (laughs) and spicy sausage all the live long day. Yes. And he throat clears like crazy. And he had a CBA. And so now, like I was doing the MBS and I had a student come with me and she, you know, was basically asking about, you know, the delay uh, or, you know, why would, why was the head of the bullets hitting the piriforms? And like we had to go through this whole, remember before we talked about GERD and LPR in this patient, think about neurological sensation, think about soft tissue sensation so that, you know, acidically corroded tissue that's inflamed is not as sensitive because the tissue to the nerve surface area is greater. He's a habitual throat clearer, which means he's not always doing it because of sensation. And then now that he's got all this pharyngeal, you know, deactivation, he's not able to compensate for that UES tightness that he has from the the irritation to it. Because she talked about tethering and how how that kind of anchors and pulls down on the longitudinal pharyngeal constrictors and he just wasn't able to compensate. So instead of just, oh, he had a CBA, it's this new thing. It all must be related to the CBA. No, this is like a perfect example of how we have to know why the esophageal phase is affecting the pharyngeal and what we can do or expect to gain. Yeah. We cannot expect this guy to stop through clear. Right. It's just so, you know, eating or meal watching Yes. This guy's not going to give you great information. Right. I mean, that's a big thing that I've had to face with um, some other clinicians about what our role is in esophageal dysphagia and that it's kind of, uh, I think you use the term diagnose and adios of, okay, there's an esophageal component. I don't know what it is, GI consult. That's it. And I think we have a huge role in recommending PPIs and H2 blockers as appropriate and being able to explain to the physician, you know, this guy's been on 20 milligrams of pentoprazole for eight years. Yes. And we take an H2 blocker holiday. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, yes. Um, and going to the, and I mean, my dietitian is phenomenal. When I say reflux precautions, she knows, you know, orange juice is no longer on your menu and the, that's great. helping me adapt to some of those things. But some of the, some other clinicians at times have, have been kind of challenging in terms of what we can do. And I think that especially in my setting, I'm an inpatient rehab. They're in the hospital. I mean, they have to be there. Yeah. And who else is going to sit down and take the time with them? to explain this, even if it's maybe not a new onset, if there's another component of the dysphagia going on that may be exacerbated by it or that in the future you could prevent. I, I'm a strong believer that prevention is a huge part of, of our scope of our job. And that sometimes we get so focused on showing gains and uh, showing improvements on these scales and uh, normative data that we have to you know, submit to insurance that we forget the prevention part. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. What, what you're saying there, there's this guy that I've seen 
And like a few years back, he had laryngeal cancer. So he extremely cognitively with a very smart, bright guy, completely aware of all of his deficits. So he's just a total functional aspirator now. I mean, his swallow is, if, if you saw it, you'd say this, this swallow is crazy, but it's completely functional, right? Mm-hmm. So this guy ends up getting a hospitalization for something completely unrelated, right? And the, the hospital SLP saw that he had this history. So she did a modified, said that his swallow is horrible, said he should be NPO of the peg. Didn't interview, no. didn't interview him at all. Just brought him in for the, for the MBS, did it. And these are the recommendations. So I see the, the poor man and he's just spilling his entire history to me. And I'm do as I'm doing the fees, I'm kind of saying things and he's like, well, yeah, that's how my swallow's been for all the years since I've had the cancer. This is how it's been. So part of me, like, like you're saying is just like, okay, so we're really not going to do much here. Like this guy's at status quo. This is how he's been for years. You know, I'm not going to mess with something that's not broken. Right. Right. It's different, not disordered. Right. Right. And I think that's just right. Right. And I just think that's such a, we have to talk to our patients and we have to get to know their stories and their backgrounds and how they even ended up in the situation. Right. So. Right. That, that's a, that's a big one. Um, functionally aspirating and like fully taking a medical picture of what, what is up with this patient? Right. Are they ambulating or do they have supplemental O2? What's their oral hygiene like? Um, if they're going to cheat, I love these conversations with my patients. Yes. yes. Cheat. Yes. Here's how we'll do it. <laughs> I'm not leaving this cup of ice chips with you. You see? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I mean that the ice chips the whole yeah. other. Yeah, I'm trying to think what he ate, but he he was like, yeah. So the they you know made me NPO with. He's like, I've had the peg for years. They just never got rid of it. They just made me start using it. I think his wife brought in like five Boston cream donuts or something. And he's mm-hmm. like, I've been eating. He's like, I eat like three Boston cream donuts a day. I was like, go on, buddy. That sounds like a great quality of life to me. <laughs> I know. I know. Good for him. Yeah. Um, yeah, even even like liberalizing diets or um, the Fraser free water protocol, um, or even like a my kind of version of the free ice chips protocol is turn some heads and um, get some mixed feedback. But I'm all about letting the bolus treat you, not you know you treating the bolus. And how we have things like MDTP now that basically tell us that. Swallowing is sensory motor, not just motor. And if you're doing all of these exercises without a bolus, yes. there's only so much that we can do. And just the most basic concept of the best way to rehab a swallow is to swallow and how to elicit an effortful swallow, how many reps are appropriate, um, the intensity of it, and whether or not you use a bolus with them just like some basic exercise principles that are things that maybe I was instilled with that I see that I, or I don't see in other patients or other clinicians sometimes like notes where I see where they did, you know, chin tuck time, chin tuck against resistance times 10, effortful swallow times 10 and a falsetto times 10 in a 45 minute session. Yeah. 
And, you know, I mean, sometimes that happens because you really have to facilitate them doing it correctly and go through education, or maybe they're severely cognitively impaired or in pain or have to go to the bathroom or I, I get that. That should also be in your notes. I don't. I think. Yeah. That should be in your note. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> um, but when you see that over and over and over again, and this whole, well, some, you know, something's better than nothing. I, 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 that's where like the other end of where you were saying, you know, being afraid of if someone's going to do harm, I think that it is harmful in a different way and that I, I'm totally a swallowologist and that's like where my heart is, but I do treat voice and I do treat cognition and I do treat other things that are going on, uh, because I have to, but yeah. Um, yeah, but I, but I think what it goes back to talking about esophageal dysphagia too, is there's some, it may be an esophageal condition. It may be a structural condition and we can do exercises till the cows come home, but until that structural damage right. is fixed, you know, we're, what are we doing? We're just wasting Medicare dollars or wasting payer dollars. So we may not be harming the patient person. We could be, but we may not be, but we're wasting a crap ton of money. And I, I would say that it could be potentially harmful to the patient in a different way. You have a patient with concomitant, you know, swallowing cognitive and speech issues. Most of the time people are going to devote a lot of their time to swallowing. And I mean, I'm guilty of that as well, um, depending on what it means for the person. But I think that every minute when you have, uh, you know, a variety of fields of deficits, every minute that you are spending ineffectively treating or not treating the swallow, you're taking away time from their cognitive therapy, from right. their speech therapy, from their voice therapy. And those things aren't getting better because of, of how something else is being treated. And I see that in sometimes, uh, and with, with other clinicians where like you can kind of in, incorporate both goals into the session. Absolutely. I think that that is skilled but just being efficient about it and understanding what you're targeting and how to target that. And, you know, kind of seeking out help when it needs, when it needs to be had. Yes, I agree. All right. So what are some other generational differences you've noticed Taylor? Um, so one of the, I mean, it's kind of what we've been talking about. One of them is the, this concept of like a speech therapist versus a speech pathologist and just how we kind of view ourselves. Um, as a profession, one of the terms that I've heard used is like consultative service, which I don't always like. I understand that, you know, not every patient that comes into the hospital is going to need speech. But at the same time, it kind of makes it sound optional. Right, right. Um, and then just the concept of therapist versus pathologist and that our role is not just to treat, you know, if, if, CVA, then treat this. If TBI, then treat this. And kind of, if they fit into our form, but rather I treat swallowing and however that comes to me and however it's impacted, it's my responsibility to treat that to the best of my ability and seeing competency in the areas that I need to be competent in. And that as medical professionals, we kind of haven't done the best job of speaking up for ourselves sometimes with other disciplines or for asking for the things that we need or expressing the importance of the things that we need. 
And I think some of that is on us. Yeah, totally. It's totally on us. And that it kind of carries down. So when, you know, people do feel like, I feel completely confident emailing this surgeon and saying, I really want you to look at this and consider an EGD or consider, um, you know, some kind of intervention for the lower esophageal sphincter, or I really think that there's a, a, a vocal fold pathology going on, a Botox injection might help Will you look at this. And basically, even in my modified barium falsetta reports, you know, saying that it's suspect for achalasia or consistent with um, kind of, I know that we're not diagnosing in this, those, those situations, but I think it's completely within our scope of practice to recognize pathological patterns and to refer specifically for what we're referring. Physicians don't do that with each other. Physicians don't. Uh, a, an internist or a hospitalist wouldn't ask for a consult for pulmonology and say they have a breathing problem. Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, why are we doing that when we send out referrals? They have a swallowing problem. It's in their esophagus. Do something about it. Yeah. <laughs> Let me know when you fix it and I can go back to doing my exercises. Yes. I, or like how we present in rounds, um, the things that we ask for when we ask for medications, when we ask for medication adjustments, when we are saying, you know, this lisinopril is just making it really difficult for me to tell at bedside what is going on with this patient, or they are just so, so sleepy, or, you know, I think a neurostimulant would really kind of set off what we need to have going on for them from an alertness standpoint and being bold with that and saying exactly what we think is going on. I think it gives more of a confidence, but that we have to be, you have to know your stuff. Yeah, totally. It it is going to come back. I think probably a lot of people are listening to this. Like I wouldn't even know where to start with some of this stuff, but I think that's the point is just to realize what you don't know, you know, and now you know that you don't know these areas and, now you know you can do some research in those areas. So uh, this right. this isn't to like shame anybody and be like, oh my god, you don't know this. But definitely, like just to say, hey, these are things that with are within our scope of practice, and we should know them, and not just know them, but really know them and be confident in talking about them. So maybe you should start to research this area a little bit more. Take a CEU course on it. Ask your peers. You know. And that's one of the, that's like kind of one of my points uh, about some of the, like the intergenerational education and how we can kind of be resources to each other. Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a ton to gain from clinical experience and uh, certain things that I have learned that I definitely did not, did not learn in school. Um, at my hospital, we take a ton of liver transplant patients that ammonia delirium is real. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Wild. I had no idea um, until I got into it and, you know, what to do with this, how to treat delirium. Is delirium even something that we can be addressing? And it's I mean, one of the I, number one predictors of pneumonia, Taylor. I know, right? Right? Right. And <laughs> I know, like, what is this person going to do when I leave the room? And, right. You know, with their food. It is, 
I mean, there are definitely things to learn from that and that we can't, we can't teach everything in grad school. Certainly cannot. Um, but we need to be given credit for the things that we do learn. Absolutely. And one of the things that I have found that can be kind of challenging, especially for a newer clinician that feels compelled to practice at the top of their license and to really use the full scope of practice and to try to hone some of those skills and figure out if they're effective and how they're appropriate with different types of patients um, is this idea of competency and what it really takes to be clinically competent in an area and what ASHA has to say about it, what other practices do for it and do what is the role of continuing education? I think that is it to learn or is it just to accrue CEUs? Right. Is it to learn and is it to learn something new or is it to build on something that you already know? Or to take the same course 12 times so that you can get your 12 CEUs or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just getting those hours in so that we can take another phonemic awareness course. Right. Oh my God. No. (laughs) Um, but like this idea that in order to do something, you have to have this continuing education credit or that these accreditations as some you know places are calling them are not recognized by ASHA. ASHA doesn't recognize accreditations in the way that you must have, you know, course A, B, and C to do this kind of treatment. I, I like uh, some of the ways that ASHA has really opened the language in the scope of practice No to basically give the clinician more free reign over where they feel confident. And the wording is, you know, that demonstrates competency in. And they don't define it by having a certain continuing education course under your belt or a certain number of hours in a certain area. Um, And I think that, you know, that can be a problem in some areas. I think that, I think it's such a slippery slope. I I really, truly do. I mean, I wish that everyone would recognize it like that, but some don't. Some just take like a 0.1 CEU and say, oh my gosh, I'm competent in it. No. Right. Like (laughs) certain things you like, like traits. Um, I love (laughs) traits. But you didn't just walk in one day, Taylor, and be like, I got this. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, my God, no. And I I definitely had to... Let me just put this purple thing on you and see what to do here. Yeah. I mean, I had a great experience. Uh, My my first medical internship was with uh, traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. Oh, awesome. All of them were traked. Yeah. And I got so much experience. And I just remember being so nervous putting the suction catheter in the first time and oh my God, I'm going to puncture their lung or something. So I know that's a hot topic, Taylor. So is that, did you, did your facility have like a structured protocol to learn how to suction or how did you become competent in suctioning? Oh my God. So yes, that is totally a thing. Um, I had to fight tooth and nail um, pretty much everywhere except for my rotations to be able to do that, which is ironic to me because I was doing it as a student, like within the before my full internships, like our mini internships where you go for two or three days a week. Yeah. And was completely unafraid of it and was deflating cuffs for people on the vent and 
it's just this is a thing that we do, just like space retrieval is a thing that we do, just like melodic intonation is a thing that we do. To me, it is just a thing. It, it is just a thing that SLPs do. And, you know, kind of given some questioning about, you know, what, how do, how are you confident? How are you billing for that? And I'm, my response for, you know, I'm not necessarily billing for suctioning. I'm not, you know, walking around the halls waiting for nursing to page me. And I think that was the fear. Yeah. Is that nursing is going to learn that I can section. And when a patient needs to be suctioned, they're going to call speech. And that has never, ever, 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 ever been the case. Oh, that's good. Um, which is fantastic. But that, that was the big fear. And that's, that's the fear with some other things like EMST, um, that that's respiratory thing. And that we need to call the respiratory therapist and have them come suction. And if you miss minutes, you miss minutes, you have to wait. And I just, I just didn't roll that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, I grabbed my respiratory therapist and I said, watch me. I'm going to suction with them. And it's now a regular thing. When we go to change a trach or decannulate, I say, Hey, you ready? Let's go. He grabs the gauze and the pull socks and we go in and pull the trach and stop it up and do some voice and swallowing assessments real quick and teach finger occlusion. And that's it. And it shouldn't be that difficult. Um, I think that, you know, suctioning is something that if you feel confident with it and you have some kind of training that you should be able to do that, but that it does not necessitate a full continuing education course. And here's my rationale. I, I kind of have the same beef with fees for people that say that it's invasive. Um, it's not invasive and not to down talk or say anything negative about our wonderful nursing colleague, but... If we can have an extensive master's level education in aerodigestive systems and not put a simple tube catheter to suction out secretions through a trach and we can't put a, a smaller tube in the form of a scope where we can actually see where we're going through their nose. As opposed to an NG tube? As opposed to an NG tube that's completely blind <laughs> and a nurse with a bachelor's degree. Um, that can do that same thing with the same kind of uh, in-service education from the respiratory therapist. So I wasn't, you know, saying, you know, nobody can tell me what to do or tell me not to do this, but if you want to have respiratory come and watch me do this, I'm perfectly fine doing that. Um, and I will show that. And now it's, I think I still might be the only, or maybe there's one or two other people in the building that are doing it, but that will do it themselves instead of calling respiratory. And I mean, it's a pre-foundational thing to me to remove secretions to make the airway as patent as possible. Just like OTs and PTs can do wound care for burn victims or for trauma victims because it's a pre-foundational component of being able to stand or use your extremities without ridiculous amounts of pain. Uh, it just, we're in there to treat swallowing. If there's something in the way of their swallowing, I don't see how that would be something that would, should hold us back. Totally. I mean, I think that we do need to have some kind of pathway for 
um, in servicing and competition, but I don't think that it should be as much of a battle or something that we should request, but rather if you're going to treat trach patients, you need to know how to do all of these things. It should be a question of, we need to up everybody's competency to treat, to be able to treat all of the people that come through our doors, not we offer treatments A, B, and C. If they don't fit, we don't see them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I see it at all different facilities that I go and do fees at. Like there's, I have to, like, I ask them every time because I can't keep who and who's straight. You know, I'm like, do you suction? They're like, no. And then I'll go to the next place. I'm like, you suction, right? They're like, of course. You know, so it's like different. <laughs> you know, I ask them every time. I can't keep everybody straight. I can't remember every facility's policies. I can't remember who's competent in what areas and who's not. But, I mean, like you're right. saying, it, we should step up to the plate a little bit more. And, you know, we should just jump back and say, no, I don't do that. Right. I mean, I fiddle with their supplemental O2. I'll take the trait collar off. I'll take off the nasal cannula and sit with, I mean, and watch them and watch the monitor and then go tell respiratory, hey, they were totally fine with me for the past 45 minutes for an hour. Do you think they could go to PT today without some of the oxygen? I want to like tax their respiratory demand and endurance. I'm trying to get you know, trying to get this strike out. I like to get them out in 72 hours if I can. Sometimes they're just really difficult tricks that love to stay in. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it is rewarding, especially to be able to show the data and show that, you know, I can take people from a modified diet to regular diet or get people's tricks out quickly. And I think that some of that speaks for itself and that some of those foundational skills where I was kind of, brazen and not afraid yeah. to do it without somebody there. Um, and better for my patients. Yeah, absolutely. It's less time. Um, yeah. A lot of them, you know, that is their whole thing. They don't, they just want this tube out of their throat and then they want to be able to walk. And so if I can get the trach out and return their swallowing to normal and they can get extra PT or OT before they go home, that's that they're happy with that because I was able to help them achieve their goals faster instead of, you know, being yeah risk averse. I think that's part of the problem is like the, the attitude of risk aversion and conservative practice. Right. Which and we I don't, don't have what, much research for to support being that right. conservative. I, yeah. I think it comes from like this, this thing in our field where I don't know, I wasn't there. Um, but it just sounds like back in the day, they were snatching licenses left and right for any little thing because the way that some people are so petrified. Yes. It's a, so, <laughs> such a scary, wild, wild Western speech world where if you do one thing wrong, yeah, your license is on the line and they'll take it away. <laughs> they will just take it away and put yes. you on the ASHA site and all these court fines and uh, that has just, I mean, that was kind of imbued in us, even in school that this was, this is the way that it has been. Yeah. Um, and I see that, I see that and it makes things clinician based instead of patient based. Yes. Yes, um, absolutely. What I'm comfortable doing. Right. What I know how to do the episode that's going to air right before you. We talked a lot about that too, just practicing clinically and using the research that we know and not practicing out of fear using just a lot of objective data and not right. because I'm scared. Right. So. I mean, if you would not want a PT that is so afraid to 
sustained you. Yeah. And if you're afraid of losing your license, then you should be airing more towards the research and practicing clinically than your okay. fear. <laughs> yeah. Like, so have your arsenal ready yeah. to, to defend yourself if you need to. I mean, and the science speaks for itself. Right. If, if you're implementing it correctly um, and really looking at it, at it critically. And I think that that's part of it is that people do want the short answer. They do want the, my patient has this problem and I'm trying to relate it to this one acute issue. And there's not a specific paper on that. Um, One of the, I mean, one of the things that I've had to discuss with previous coworkers things like you know thermal tactile stimulation with a laryngeal mirror um hard cut and guh one that like masako yeah <laughs> that is still kind of a, a hither or thither topic um i just think that it doesn't do what most people think that it does i don't right. think that it's completely ineffective there's just not a ton of of data to suggest that it does exactly what it says that it's advertised as doing. But there are other things that I do that I would say other people would, would kind of call me out for that as well. My PTs kind of make fun of me because they call me a wannabe head PT. I just want to say, just start to wrapping up here. So what, I guess, what are some other kind of hot topic issues that are within our scope of practice that some other generations may not realize um okay one of mine is let's see one of them is there's kind of two but one i would definitely say is like manual therapy and getting in there and palpating and what we can do for the jaw and trigger point release and range of motion and things like that that it is not just a pt thing It is a PT modality to treat specific issues of weakness or pain or functional abilities with the range of motion. And that when that impacts swallowing, if you don't know what you need to do, maybe, you know, go hang out with your PT. Um, Maybe ask them for some resources or some, or to observe. The other one is uh, the hyoid is overrated. (laughs) All right. I, with the laryngeal elevation, mostly in that context, um, I think that when you look critically at the research and you look even at like the beginning parts, I actually got out my dysphagia textbooks the other day and just kind of read like the, where they go through the pathophysiological, like, and this nerve, you know, innervates the blah, blah, blah muscle and this happens and what they talk about for laryngeal elevation and it's so heavy on inferior neck and so heavy on hyoid verse and elevation and this like chain gang kind of interaction with the, the thyroid cartilage. When, if you look at it, it's, it's really salpingopharyngus and um, the thyrohyoid and all of these other muscles that are deep neck that are not submental, that are really actually close, causing the larynx to elevate and the epiglottis to reach a horizontal point. And this kind of one-to-one consideration of if there's not complete laryngeal vestibular closure or complete epiglottic inversion, it's got to be high laryngeal elevation. 
that that if that's you know that's what we have to work on um when if you look at normal parameters it's five millimeters to 28 right in normals which is a huge range right so unless you have like some kind of object to scale or you somehow had a baseline from before of what their hyaluronic elevation was i think that our subjective you know kind of view of that may not be the the best thing that we can kind of hinge upon and i would say this as well um when we palpate i mean i think that we should palpate but i don't think that we should be saying things like reduced or minimalized hyaluronic elevation um based on the you know the finger test or just palpating rather it should be you know absent or present right did you feel like some kind of movement because we're not measuring I mean, I don't really know, maybe outside of any research kinematic study where anybody is really measuring. Um, A pro at palpating. Right. So if we can't do that palpating-wise and we have like a measurement for how big our finger is, then why are we doing that visually on a modified bear and swallow study and forgetting about the role of the base of the tongue and the C-shaped pharyngeal constrictor muscles that are fully pulling that epiglottis all the way down to the arytenoid heads. And I I mean, I see that so much in reports and all of these exercises. And then I get them and like the hyoid is shooting past the ramus of the mandible. And, (laughs) and they're, they're not getting that full epiglottic inversion. They're not getting laryngeal vesicular closure. We just got to keep, got to keep working on that hyaluronic elevation. Um, And studies like, with a biofeedback with the Mendelssohn that's so often when we, even when we think that we're doing it or that our patients are doing that, they're not, Yeah, they're, they're getting elevation, but they're not really keeping the larynx closed. So they're dropping it. Right. They're getting hyoid elevation, but not laryngeal elevation. Right. Um, and that this kind of chain gang of let's target the anterior neck. Let's target the submentals because we can see them. We can get access to them. We have a bunch of exercises to them uh, to, to strengthen them. So we'll just kind of rely on that one component of laryngeal elevation as our, you know, one tool in the box. Um, and I understand why. Like, I understand it's, it's the anterior neck. We don't really have a way of getting and more of the internal structures that really contribute more to laryngeal elevation. It just kind of revisiting some of the basics of kinematics and the physiology and the things that we had to learn and memorize. But then as soon as we got to interpreting instrumentals, it's, we grossly oversimplified it. Right. And tried to make it into it. If this, then this. Right. I agree, Taylor. Totally. All right. So now that we've whined a lot, <laughs> we got to give people some cheese. Some, some cheese. Yes. So what, so, do you, what do you think we can do about this? How do you think we can help to bridge the gap? I, I mean, one of the things that I have tried to do more recently and in the past is to try to create a an expectation that we should and can and need to give priority to finding time in our work year, month, week, whatever, to educate ourselves. Um, and to be teaching each other. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things about, you know, AAC that I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that maybe I could benefit from or, you know, 
higher level cognitive therapy or return to work therapy ideas that maybe I'm not thinking of. And when I think of that and my attitude, it's like, oh my God, I never would have thought of that. I'm going to start doing that. But for some reason with this, right. with swallowing, we put up a wall and yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And I, I get that there's a respect for it. And this, you know, could really harm the patient if not done. I think, I don't know what just made me think of this, but it's like, you know, our SLP friends that work in the schools, you know, they're always like, Hey, do you have a new activity for pronouns? You know, they're like actively like seeking out each other to bounce yes. ideas off of, right? Like, why are we not doing that with dysphagia? Like, Hey, am I totally missing the boat here or right. yeah. Exactly. And and I mean, it's like, no, I've been doing this for so long. Right. And I mean, it's been mixed and I can't, I'm not, you know, it won't completely want and say that everything hasn't been received. Um, but maybe in the way that it's delivered or brought up. Right. Right. Um, so I've been trying to do it in a, can I please, please, please in service, um, our SLPs or the nurses or even PTs about, Hey, refer to us when you see, TMJ and Trismus and head and neck issues and their voice sounds like this and they say they're choking on pills like please right please send them to right um, so having an opportunity to try to share like oh I found this or oh I have done this before um, some things that I've had success with are um, CTAR. Um, really getting people on board with, you know, what it is, how it's used. Um, and I mean, I just find that I like Shakir. It's cool, but I find that my patients love CTAR. Yeah. Um, like a lot. More I think they like, I think they like having like a physical object. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. It's like they love the like CTAR ball or something, you know? Totally. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we just got a Therabyte and I'm super pumped about that. Um, I mean, the squeaky, what is it? The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yes, totally. Um, so squeak on and, yeah. you know, ask for what you need. But I think that we have to share the knowledge with each other and find a way to do that in a constructive way. So instead of, you know, asking, why don't you try this? Or do you not know about this? Or um, I think that we've kind of gotten in a passive aggressive pattern. Totally, totally. I'm going to send her a link to this website or to this research article and she'll figure it out. Yeah. She'll know. We can't do it that way. I know. <laughs> I know. I, so many people are like, oh, I just email people a link to your podcast. I'm like, but, but which episode? Like what, where, <laughs> where are you? <laughs> where are you going with that? So I hear you. Um, so just trying to introduce it in a way where it's expected, like, and I think that it should be part of our job. A lot of us, you know, we do have this educational background or the educational component where we should be able to integrate and synthesize knowledge in a conducive, concise way at a professional level. And that, you know, you don't have to present a board at ASHA or something like that to do that. You can do it right where you work. Yeah. Um, and not just and allowing everyone the opportunity to do that. Um, and I think that a lot of younger clinicians get afraid. Yeah. I mean, why can't we like go back to like kindergarten, like, um, like show and tell or something like everybody share one new thing you learned this week. You know, I don't know. Like there has to be some way to make it that it it isn't this confrontational, passive aggressive way. Like, 
Right. Oh, hey, I learned about this. Did you guys know about that? Right. And, but I mean, you have to, at the same time, being armed with research and with what Asha says. And I mean, when I've been challenged in, in the past, you know, having that ready, but making sure that you have the time to actually discuss that. Yeah. Um, because handing somebody a research article or sending them a link, um, I don't, that doesn't go off very well. Here, here's some homework to do. Right. Um, doesn't, you know, it's not really received. We're all very busy people. Right. Um, and I think that it's true that everybody wants to be better and wants to learn more, but, um, there's this, for some reason, there's just this cloud of insecurity around it. Um, some maybe from the history of, you know, speech taking on swallowing. And, you know, when I graduated, I didn't know anything about swallowing. I'm completely self-taught. And, you know, I had to pay all this money to go to these continuing ed courses. And like, I've heard that a million times. And I'm so glad that the pioneers in our field did that. Yeah. But, but <laughs> now I have benefited from a program where I was taught and trained and, you know, kind of allow me the benefit of the doubt that, Maybe I, maybe there's some things that I need that I do know what I'm talking about. Other things that I know I'm very overzealous about. Yeah. Um, I can be overly optimistic. Is that so bad? Aggressive. Well, I mean, I I think I've had one patient ever actually get aspiration pneumonia. But so I would say that's an inpatient rehab setting. Yeah. But no, I mean, I'm. I'm all gung ho about it. I, I think people can take a lot more aspiration than we give them. Credit. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Bodies are tough. Yes. All right. Wrapping up Taylor, any final thoughts, final words? Um, no, I don't think so. Just be open Just be, to learning. Be open to learning from all kinds of people. Um, regardless of what your perception of their clinical expertise may be. Swallow read, your pride read. people. Right. Read the information that they're talking about. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Taylor. This was great. Thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.